0: Welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a podcast where two brothers answer your questions, we give you advice, and we can bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. John. Yeah. John. Yeah. What kind of car do people drive in the fall? It's a Volkswagen Autumn? An automobile. Oh,
1: I was so close. I
0: knew the- Yeah, you got you got close. I knew
1: that that there were two major words for autumn. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's the it's gonna it, tomorrow is the first day of fall, John. Yeah. And my son gets really excited about fall. I think he only remembers one other one and he will come into the house screaming, "I see a sign of fall!" Oh, that's very sweet, which is really great.
1: I am less yeah. excited about this fall than I have been about any fall during my lifetime because the weather is about to get colder and all of my socialization occurs out of doors.
0: I am also terrified of fall. Um, everything about fall seems bad to me. It, I've got, I go outside and it's a little cool and Oren is like, it's a sign of fall. And I'm like, dun, dun, dun. Oh, winter is coming. Yes. Yeah. The, the leaves have even started to change here a little bit. Um, and that just feels very, very ominous to me right now. Yeah, the
1: leaves have started to change here as well, especially the maple trees. And it is a little... Look, mm-hmm. it's possible that six months from now, you and I are going to look back on this fall and winter and be like, wow, that was so great. It was better than spring and summer. (laughs) I think that's probably less likely.
0: Yeah, it seems seems less likely.
1: And so what I'm trying to remind myself of is that regardless of what happens, and we don't know what's going to happen, we will keep going for as long as we can, as well as we can. That's my
0: motto for our species, Okay. Yes. And we have done a remarkable job of it so far. Maybe, in some cases, too
1: remarkable. I was going to say, like, remarkably bad (laughs) at times, remarkably good at other times, but above all, extremely remarkable. If there's there's one adjective you can apply to our species, Mm -hmm. it is remarkable.
0: I will remark on this. (laughs) That is something one can remark on. No doubt about it.
1: Yeah, I think we're definitely— We may not be the best species that ever lived on Earth, but we are definitely the most remarkable.
0: We're the most remarkable thing in the known universe. Yeah, like, I feel like I could spend way
1: more time remarking on humans than I could remarking Mm -hmm. on, say, Venus. But we'll get to that at the end of the pod. (laughs) Let's start out with some (laughs) questions from our listeners, Uh including this first question from Steph, who writes, Uh Dear John and Hank, my roommate and her rabbit, Floyd, have auditioned and been cast in a <gasps> rabbit agility competition, competition TV show. TV show. We're pretty sure this is not a weird scam. <laughs> now,
0: Steph, let me stop you right there. How sure are you? Yeah, I feel like you need to be very sure that this is not a scam. Ah, uh, Yep, you just need to be very sure. That said, while I think it is... Maybe
1: a scam. (laughs) I also think... I would watch the heck out of a rabbit agility competition TV show. Yeah. The plan is for my roommate and Floyd to fly to Los Angeles for a weekend sometime in the spring to shoot. So, this question, like all questions deep down, is about the pandemic. Is Floyd's breakout role worth the risk? How do you plan for and agree to something that's so far in the future? Will the virus be contained mm. by the spring? We're in mm-hmm. Canada, so we're pretty wary of the United States
0: right now. <laughs> Floyd is employed. Steph, I might continue your level of wariness of the US on into the future, potentially permanently. I think that Floyd might be OK. So let's just like carve Floyd out of the equation mm-hmm. unless Floyd can go by himself, which I don't know if that's allowed. Can a rabbit just get on a plane?
1: I feel like the Probably rabbit not. agility TV show is going to involve an owner. But maybe not.
0: Maybe not. Here's oh my here's gosh.
1: here's here's my honest answer. Mm-hmm. I think being on reality TV shows is a lot of work for usually very little mm-hmm. screen time yes. or other reward. Yes.
0: That is that is definitely the, the case. I think
1: like the amount of pleasure and happiness and fun times that you get out of being on a reality TV show is usually pretty limited, unless you're desperate to meet other people in the rabbit
0: agility world. Mm. In which case, I guess maybe it could be a
1: cool Opportunity.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, Two great points, John. Uh, The first one being we should, I would like to see a survey of how people feel about their reality television show experiences. And at one time, this would be very difficult to do, um, but now <laughs> yeah. you can simply survey 100 Americans and yeah. get 30 who have been on reality television shows, and they will tell you how they felt about it. Yeah. It's not even an exceptional experience anymore to be on reality TV. It's something that appears to happen to just about everyone. Who hasn't been on Wipeout at this point? Y-
1: yeah, we've been watching a Wipeout-related show called Cannonball, mm-hmm. and it has like 24 contestants per week, most of whom, by the way, are on screen for like between six and eight uh, seconds yeah. and four. For this, they have to, like, jump into a, a freezing cold lake of water. It's always so cold. Why is it always so cold? I don't know. I, Film these things in the summer. Well, they're trying to make a point. <laughs> At any rate, here's the deal, Steph. Would Hank and I do this show? No. No. But are Hank and I passionate experts in in rabbit agility?
0: Also no. No. And it may be the kind of community that is is very exciting. And I don't know how what the with the sort of like what how lucrative this is. Um, you know, if the if the upside is what what could it possibly be, John? In the thousands of dollars? I would hope
1: that you get a free flight, yeah. free lodging, yeah. and maybe like twelve hundred bucks.
0: And like a ton of carrots.
1: <laughs> right, the, a year's supply of carrots. Do rabbits actually like carrots, or is that just a cliche? <laughs> of course, they like carrots. Anyway,
0: don't. It's this is. <laughs> don't listen to us. Don't listen. Don't listen to us. <laughs> oh
1: god. All right, let's move on.
0: This next question comes from Malia, who asks a question that we received in many different forms, uh, which is wild and terrifying. Help, Malia says. Uh, There are currently wildfires where I live in Oregon that are spreading pretty quickly. We are in the level one evacuation zone, meaning that we should be packing and have a plan. I don't know what to pack. What should I bring? Should I bring my great grandma's chair, some of my favorite books, my stuffed shark from Ikea that I sleep with? How many candles is too many candles to bring? Should I have had a list of things to bring before this even started? Not the Obama Malia. This is why we are asked answering this question, because uh, we cannot—it is too, too late, I think, probably to help Malia, but it is hopefully not too late to help other people. Make a list. You got to make a list. It's got it
1: because this is a, such a stressful situation. If you have a little bit of time to leave mm-hmm. and you have a list, then you can just check things off on the list. And study after study after study after study shows that checklists work.
0: Yeah. And and what they really show is that not having a checklist doesn't work. So you end up in situations where you very much thought you were going to bring in a, a specific thing with you, and you did not bring that thing. Now, it's very hard to know exactly when you say, like, okay, what well, can we fit in the Subaru? What are the things that that you both cannot replace and that you really do not want to live without? And, you know, going going through that and spending time on it is the only way to make those decisions.
1: Yeah, it's just such a hard thing. And we know so many people are going through this right now, including friends of ours. And we wish you all the best. And it's it's scary. I don't know what else to say about it.
0: Yeah. Even if you are not in a current wildfire zone, there are lots of pl- reasons that you might need to evacuate your home. And so having some supplies on hand and a list of what you want to bring with you is always a good idea.
1: Hank, sometimes I think back to early in this podcast when you told me that you keep like a two week supply of water and food with you <laughs> at all times. And <laughs> it's, I, it's what,
0: I, it's what this, the government recommends. It's not even, it's not
1: weird. I laughed at you and called you a prepper. And now, <laughs> um, well, how the. Turns have tabled. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, it may be that I have more than I used to have.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, so. <laughs> yeah, so you really don't ever know. And I do think it's useful to have a checklist. It's also important to know that sometimes you have to leave without going through the checklist. Yeah, and if you have really to leave, do. you have to leave. Mm-hmm. And, and your life is more important than any stuff.
0: Yes, the only thing that can't be truly replaced is is your life.
1: No, there are lots of other things that also can't be replaced. They're just not as valuable. (laughs)
0: Yeah, you got it. That one. (laughs) You can remake your grandma's chair. Get out a whittling knife. (laughs) That's disturbing. All right. Uh, This next
1: question comes from Craig, who asks, Dear John and Hank, did people fold paper airplanes before the Wright brothers?
0: Yes. Yes. I know a lot about this now because we did research
1: on it. (laughs) I know a fair amount about it, too. People folded paper airplanes
0: maybe from the advent of paper. It seems to have been uh, quite soon after paper. An amazing thing is uh, that I found out in this research is that da Vinci designed that helicopter thing, the Ornithop. I don't remember what it's called. It's called something neat. And he actually made a paper model of it to see if it would work. And so that was a kind of paper plane before they were called paper planes because they weren't called planes, because planes didn't exist. They were called paper darts. So we know that paper darts existed because it was illegal and you could be fined $10 for throwing a paper dart at the New York Stock Exchange during the 1800s, Mm. which uh, makes me think that for a while, this was a problem. (laughs) So they had to to have a rule about it. Yeah, and it seems that paper planes were both pretty
1: common and that they helped inform some questions in airplane design through much of the 20th century. So, you know, if you're out there folding paper planes, you're engaging in an activity that is much older than air travel. But to be fair, almost all human activities are older than air travel. (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh yeah. Ap- apparently they only became started being called paper planes. Mm-hmm. So even after the advent of planes, they were still called paper darts and only began being called paper planes once there were some planes that started to look more like paper darts Whoa. than the airplanes that we see these days.
1: That's a little lesson in linguistics right there, Hank.
0: Yeah. It's pretty cool. All right, Hank, it's time for
1: our weekly question about voting in the United States. Mm-hmm. We're only gonna do one of these
0: a week. (laughs) Though though there was a chance that this was going to turn into a How to Vote in America podcast, but it's not going to happen. Uh, We've decided not to do that, but
1: we are going to answer one question about voting every week. The voting system in the United States is a wee bit complex. You can learn more by looking up How to Vote in Every State, the amazing YouTube channel that uh, Hank and folks at Complexly have made together. But- this election is extremely important in the united states it's important to people outside of the united states as well because the the us is so globally significant and mm-hmm. we want to help people understand how to vote. So Diana writes, Dear John and Hank, last year or maybe two years ago, time is meaningless now. One of you recommended a website that lets you view your full ballot in U.S. elections when you type in your address. And I found this super useful last year or possibly two years ago. And now I cannot find it. Do you by any chance have it handy, Pumpkins and Penguins Diana?
0: It's called Ballotpedia, I think. Is that correct, John? <laughs> this is what was in my brain.
1: Yes, it is
0: called Ballot
1: pedia.org but you can just google look up my sample ballot and it is mm-hmm. it will usually be the first search result although of course your ser- search results are tailored to you so for all i know your first search result might be some kind of political misinformation but ballotpedia.org <laughs> and you can look up your sample ballot and then you can like see all the things that you'll be voting for and you can do a little bit of research and figure out who you want to vote for for the various offices and on the various like resolutions and whatever
0: it's also possible that your, uh, your local election people will do a better job than Ballotpedia. So Ballotpedia will just tell you what the elections are, give you sort of really, for individual elections, they'll just tell you the people that are in them, then you can look them up. For things like ballot initiatives or laws that you might be voting on, they, they usually give a pretty bare bones version of it. And those tend to be more well explained at the local level. So you can also look up your, you know, sort of like type in sample ballot and then like your county. And it may be that they they will provide that for you on the Internet pretty easily. But it may be that that's not the case um, because it's, again, uh, administered very locally in the U.S. So that's why things like Ballotpedia are great, because that works for everyone. They've figured out how to do it.
1: Yeah, so look up your sample ballot and please make sure you are registered to vote. Make sure your registration is current and that you have a Mm -hmm. plan to vote, just like it's important to have a checklist in other parts (laughs) of your life. If you can have a checklist about how you're going to vote and and know exactly how you're going to do it, it makes it far, far more likely that you will actually see it through.
0: And you can find out if you're registered to vote very easily by going to vote.org. They just have you type in your name and address and they can look up on the national registry and tell you whether you're registered is really important to check and really, really easy to do at vote.org. And then once you're done doing that, you can go to youtube.com slash how to vote in every state and find your state. Look it up. There is a shorter than three minute video there for you to watch. John, this next question comes from Jessica, who asks, dear Hank and John, why don't we hear animals fart? I'm just going to stop you right there. What kind of dog you got? Yeah,
1: yeah. I feel like dogs fart extremely loudly. It's true that we don't hear a lot of wild animals farting, but that's because we don't, I presume that's <laughs> because- not by. Yeah,
0: we're not near them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jessica says, why don't we hear of a cacophony of little toots in the woods or at the zoo? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how often do you fart, Jessica? Is, a, is it just a, c- a cacophony in your home? <laughs> uh, but maybe if you got like enough monkeys around, you would expect to hear a lot of farts. But yeah, you can definitely hear animal farts. And it is not um, a butt cheek thing, which is proposed by Jessica. Mm. In fact, I've done a little bit of research, and (laughs) it seems to mostly be about the opening, Mm -hmm. the the, the, the anus, the sphincter there. Sure. And that you can actually, like, uh, there was a doctor who was asked about this, who spends a lot of time down there, and discussed... Uh, that in just like anything else with noise, there is both what we call the frequency and the amplitude. The <laughs> amplitude is how loud something is, and the frequency is how uh, how it vibrates. <laughs> and so you can control frequency by tightening, usually, uh, or loosening, and you get a higher pitch or lower pitch, like I'm doing with my voice right now. So I can go ah ah, or I can go louder ah ah, and that is about the amount of. Amount of air moving through the thing. So you can you can force more air through and that makes it louder, or you can tighten or loosen and that will a- adjust the frequency, which I, is apparently something that is cap you we are all capable of doing to some extent with our own patooties.
1: I find that I have very little control over the frequency or the amplitude.
0: <laughs> I definitely have control over the amplitude. <laughs> okay. Well, that's <laughs> <laughs> that's thus ends. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> that thus ends the portion of the podcast dedicated to our uh, 11-year-old <laughs> listeners. We just want you to know that we see you, we know you're out there, mm-hmm. 11-year-olds, and we hope you enjoyed that. This next question comes from Anonymous, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I recently finished graduate school, and it took me like four months to get a job, which was very stressful. And I finally found a job at an oil company, which has in the reception area a painting of the Monopoly man being showered by oil and dollar bills. Now, oh, my God, it does. I could see a picture of it right now. We're not going to post this on the patreon at patreon.com/ slash Hank and John because we're not trying to get this person fired, uh, but this <laughs> is an epic, epic painting of the Monopoly Man.) <sighs> Un- holding an umbrella with the umbrella is made of money, and then oil and money is showering down on the Monopoly
0: man. Yeah, and it is it is an unsigned painting, so <laughs> so we do not know who the artist is. I I love everything about this painting. What I love? Do you? Oh
1: yes, very much. I mean, I, would I want it in my home, probably not. But what I love most about it is that it's the least self aware painting I've ever seen in my entire life. Okay. Oil companies are famous for being unethical, to put it mildly. I don't want to work for the bad guys, but I also need to pay rent and eat. And the job market is terrible for obvious reasons. What should I do to feel like I'm not part of the problem of slowly destroying our society? Anonymous. Hank? I'm thinking, John. Oh, okay. I don't know the answer to that question. (laughs) Okay. So I I have, I think, an answer. Okay, you go. I think if you want another job and you want to work in a different industry, you should pursue other job opportunities. Mm -hmm. I also think that there is no such thing as completely ethical consumption in a system of extractive capitalism. I just don't think that exists. I think the work that we do for money is an important way that we allocate. Our attention and our resources, but it's definitely not the only way, Mm -hmm. right? Like, we also allocate our attention and resources by the causes that we care about, by the causes that we support with our money and with our time. And we allocate our resources by how we decide to distribute our votes and by how we decide to distribute the money that we make. And I absolutely understand, like, needing to pay rent yeah. and the challenges that brings like those challenges are kind of inherent to the system as we are currently imagining it now obviously we need to imagine these systems very differently but that's where we are right now
0: well here's here's the other thing i think it's important to recognize that um you working at an oil company is exactly as ethical as me using oil which i also do and most people do you know if you are working at an oil company doing Specifically unethical things, if you are working to slow the public's understanding of climate change and the severity of that problem, that's a totally different thing. But, like, people have to work in the oil industry because we need oil for. Lots of things like if oil just stopped happening right now, it would be very bad for humans. Lots of people would die. Like it it wouldn't be like a small problem. You know, obviously, we need to move away from these systems as fast as possible. But also, I think that it's important to recognize that the people who work in that industry are doing work that is necessary as it exists right now. Now. Absolutely, those companies are working very hard and spending lots of money to slow our transition away from their product, and that is unethical, and it's extremely dangerous, and it's going to have a long-term negative impact on many, many people, uh, probably all people. But I try to understand that like, my life is dependent upon the hard work of people in extractive industries Even if I think that we should be working as fast as we can to not have that be the case. Yeah. So, like, somebody's gonna have to do this work, and it is probably best done by people who can bring a diversity of viewpoints into that company, whether it is, you know, at a very low level or not. Just having it be a bunch of people who all believe that climate change is bunk would be not great. So I think it's important that we have good people working in these industries for as long as they are necessary. We just also need to be working as hard as possible to be making them not necessary quickly. Yeah. John, this next question comes from Tina, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I just had a dream about giants. They were destroying my home city. I was fast enough to outrun them, but I was wondering, would giants actually be slow? They're so big. Does time work differently for them? <laughs> I feel like time is much faster for flies. Would that be the opposite for giants? Still stuck in quarantine. Tina, this is a very quarantine question, John. It is. I think
1: we're all dreaming some version of being attacked by giants. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, there, there there is something to be Said that all of the big animals do go slower. And I like there has to be good scientific reasons for this. I guess like force equals mass times acceleration. So if you move faster, the the force of moving is larger if you are more massive. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, you would have to be you'd have to be slower. Like blue whales, you know, they can move fast, but their individual body parts move slow.
1: Yeah. How fast do elephants run? Because I feel like elephants are the best model for giants we currently have.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, how fast would you guess the elephant can run?
1: I would guess that an elephant can run approximately 12 miles an hour.
0: Well, and how fast do you think the average or, or the fastest human can run?
1: Well, I know that Usain Bolt can run 100 meters in just under 10 seconds. And using the power of mathematics, <laughs> I would imagine that that means that... <laughs>
0: He runs at like twenty miles an hour. Twenty-seven. Oh, I was uh, about twenty seven miles an hour. So pretty good. I was in the I was in the neighborhood. So so Usain Bolt can go twenty seven miles an hour. I bet I can go like ten, maybe. For I mean, a little bit.
1: I, I know for a fact that I can go like 11 and a half miles an hour, but only for about a quarter mile. Yeah. I'm, I like, a, che- I'm like a cheetah, but a <laughs> really old
0: one. cheetah. Well, an <laughs> African, African bush elephant's top speed is 25 miles an hour.
1: Okay. So they're fast.
0: So they're fast. So we should be very, very afraid of giants.
1: Yeah. I think now I think giants are a th- are an active threat.
0: I was not worried about Giants until this question was asked. Yeah. Now I'm very worried about Giants. Well,
1: the thing about Giants is that I think our stories about Giants tend to portray Giants as being very slow because otherwise uh, there would be no match, you know? Like, it, there wouldn't be a competition between regular people and Giants. The Giants would have already won and it would be over. hmm And so we have to imagine them as being weak somehow. <laughs> and so we imagine them as like, oh,
0: yeah, no, they're big, but we're fast. <laughs> Well, I mean, the thing about an elephant moving fast is that its body parts don't look to be moving that fast because it's just big. Right. So you got a you got a long stride, right? And this is the case with blue whales, right? Where it's like the 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 back the the fin the back fin there the tail is what it's called. Yeah. can move quite slowly but be pushing a lot right. and very hard. Right and uh yeah so so a fly might look like it's moving very fast but actually be going quite slow because it's just like in c- in comparison to its body size you know the other
1: thing about giants that just occurred to me is that we often imagine giants as not being very smart right like rolled dolls giants aren't that smart and i think that is also because if we imagine them otherwise they become an existential threat to us
0: yeah <laughs> like, well, I mean, we like to imagine some things that are threatening.
1: Yeah, but we love to be able to, like, take them down somehow, right? Like, right. David David and Goliath only works because David's got that slingshot. <laughs> we love a story where humans are in with a chance. Right. The
0: odds are long, but we can do it. Yeah, vampires are immortal unless. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, um, giants, I think, would probably be pretty fast. And uh, could you run away from them? Probably not. So let's just t- not have there be giants win for everybody.
1: Which reminds me that today's podcast is brought to you by They Might Be Giants. Oh. They might be.
0: <laughs> and I'm not going to see them in concert next month, which burr, was my burr, plan. Burr. This podcast is also brought to you by the Monopoly man being bathed in oil and dollar <sighs> bills. God. He's just he's just covered. He's just absolutely covered. Do you
1: know that he has a name and that his name is Rich Uncle Pennybags? Oh gosh!
0: Well, at least it's just pennies in those bags. Yeah, that's more—that's more a weapon than a than a currency at that point.
1: <laughs> Today's podcast is also brought to you by the television program Cannonball. The television program <laughs> Cannonball. Some people say it's like the uh, the Breaking Bad of reality TV. <laughs>
0: Oh, gosh. And this podcast finally is brought to you by The Amplitude. (laughs) The Amplitude. It can be controlled. I, I find that it really can't be. Well, you need practice more.
1: We also have a Project for Awesome message from Oliver Cossett. Oliver, thank you for donating to the Project for Awesome. If this is being read in 2020, Oliver writes, chances are it's a pretty stressful time right now. (sighs) <sighs> okay. Thanks for acknowledging that, Oliver. I appreciate it. I just wanted to remind everyone to take a moment to breathe, to try to find calm, and then return to putting your energy toward whatever matters to you.
0: This episode of Dear hang is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is there to help you maintain the kinds of habits that you want to have. For me, I need to have the right kind of food in the house or I will eat whatever. Oreo recently sent me some free fancy Oreos. They were weird. I ate all of them. I ate all of them in a week, and it was a problem. I can't do that. I need to have healthy, good stuff in the house. And Thrive Market can help you have healthy habits. It's a great go-to for all your grocery and household essentials, and the convenience of getting everything online and then, like, just quickly shipped to the doorstep, it's a huge time-saver. Thrive Market carries brands with great ingredients and sourcing methods. They got Amy's, Banza, Burt's Bees, Tribani Honest Kids, Kind, Mike's Hot Honey, Oatly, Olipop Poppy... Salt.
1: Okay, I think it's time to move on to the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. Hank, I'll go first because AFC Wimbledon are back in action. All right. Does that mean they're playing sports? They're playing sports, Hank. The League One season has begun, and it began with a bang, followed by a whimper, followed by another bang, followed by another whimper. AFC Wimbledon tied 2-2 in their first game of the League One season against recently promoted Northampton Town. Now, we are favorites to be relegated this season. But Northampton... <laughs> can you call it favorites when that's the situation? We are considered... Yes. <laughs> we are we are favorites to be unfavored this season. But yeah. but Northampton Town is even more favorited to be unfavored than we are. So this wasn't necessarily a great result. But AFC Wimbledon did score a goal 22 seconds in to their League One campaign, which is fairly promising. Promising, I think. On the whole, I thought that we played really well. I watched the game, there was a lot of attacking. From AFC Wimbledon, I felt like we had more possession of the ball, better passing than I've seen, certainly in the last couple seasons. I thought some of the new players were really promising. In fact, one of the new players, Ethan Chislett, scored. I, I don't want to say that I feel hopeful because I don't even know if the season is going to get completed. Who who, who knows? Yeah, but yeah. I, I do feel like that was a good game. And it was just really fun to watch AFC Wimbledon play football again. It was just... Yeah, it just it felt like a little dose of normality amid all of the everything else. And so it was just a joy. You can listen to the broadcast, the radio broadcast. There's obviously no fans in the stadium, but you can listen to the broadcasts at uh, Radio WDON. Or uh, on they have an, they have an app AFC Wimbledon does and it's just great I love the I love the two commentators one of them has a photographic memory and remembers every single game that Wimbledon has played on every single day and so like fifty five minutes into the broadcast he'll be like this reminds me of uh, twenty seven years ago on this day <laughs> when of course like you know Wimbledon. Uh, Lost two one uh, <laughs> to Yoville Town, and the goals were scored. And I'm just like, oh my! This is a—it's just such a joy that it's all back. So yeah, it was really lovely. And then Hank, then I found out the best news of all,
0: uh-huh. which is that there's life on life on Venus. <laughs> there's life on Venus. <laughs> so I guess our Mars news, our Mars news this week will be will be Venus news because it does impact uh, Mars in the main way, which is that for a long time we have thought our best chance of being able to study life outside of our planet in the solar system would be Mars. And this isn't because it's the most habitable place in the solar system. It is just the easiest to get to. That also has a chance of either having you know, potentially existing life, but much more likely signs of ancient life that, that stopped being around a long time ago. And uh, the, the much more likely candidate for life are the the liquid oceans inside of the gas giant moons. Um, so there's lots of water there, there's lots of heat there. So, you know, if life can happen on the hydrothermal vents of Earth, there's basically no reason why it couldn't happen on Enceladus, for example. But but that's neither here nor there. Mars was like, it's easy to go to Mars. You can land there and walk around fairly easily. Unlike everywhere else, you certainly can't walk around on Mercury, certainly can't walk around on Venus, which is even hotter than Mercury. You can like the surface of Venus, you can melt lead like it's not a good place. It's not a good place for a lot of different reasons, but it turns out that at the upper atmosphere of Venus, so like way up in the atmosphere, there's there's basically a, a. fairly narrow band of Venus's atmosphere that is like 20 degrees Celsius, which is like beautiful outside. It's one atmosphere of pressure. So like same as Earth. Mm. And so water can be liquid there and is liquid there. The problem is that Venus has a big problem with with acid. So it's very acidic. Yeah. Um, way more acidic than any life on Earth could live inside of. It's like 90% acid. Like a person could be there Easily, as long as they didn't let the atmosphere touch their skin, if they take a (laughs) breath, for example, they would die instantly in a very painful way. Right. But the idea is that possibly, excuse me for walking you through this whole thing, possibly we think in the early life of Venus, it was a fairly nice place to be even on the surface. And it's possible that during that period of time, life evolved there. If that happened, then over the course of Venus becoming less and less hospitable, the life, like certain kinds of organisms, could have evolved to live in this actually fairly hospitable, compared with the rest of Venus, layer of the atmosphere. Now we don't have anything on Earth that can live in anything like the acidity that we have on Venus. We have extremophiles on Earth that can live in acidic environments, but those acidic environments are not are like basic like forty times less acid than, right. than it is on on Venus. So. Could there be life in that zone? Maybe. And people have talked for a long time about whether there could be life in that zone. But just recently, last week, there were some scientists who who published a paper, a very exciting paper that said they found phosphine, which is basically uh, ammonia. But instead of nitrogen, there's phosphorus. Phosphine is a super bad gas here on Earth. We don't study it that much because it's very dangerous. But... Here on Earth, some bacteria do produce phosphine in environments where there's no oxygen. So one of the biochemical pathways that produces energy for life to live on, one of the byproducts is phosphine. We don't know of any other way that phosphine could be created on Venus. This doesn't mean that it can't be created on Venus. There are things we don't understand about how Venus's atmosphere works, Obviously, we've never been there. We've only studied it from afar. We know quite a bit about it. Like we're learning more about it every day. We also don't know that, like as much as we could about phosphine, because it's not a fun thing to study. In general, the more dangerous a chemical is, the less it is studied because chemists want to live uh, to to a ripe old age. And, and you know, almost every chemist knows somebody who who didn't or knows somebody who knows somebody who didn't so you, you know you be careful in the lab so there are things we don't know about both of those things that and those two unknowns along with the the extraordinary claims requiring extraordinary evidence means that there's nobody out there saying that like we found life on Venus but we did find a chemical that indicates like we have both the both sides of the story now where we've got like this space where life could certainly exist if it could evolve to be to live in such an acidic environment. And we also have this biosignature that we don't know how it would be created without life. And that's really exciting and interesting. There is really only one way to figure out what's going on, though, and that's to send a probe to Venus. Got to go scoop to Venus. Up some atmosphere gotta and go bring to it back for us to look at. We've got to go to Venus. You open it up, the phosphine gas comes out along with the microbes and. Almost definitely they die instantly and we can study them. And then there's this sort of like, you know, 0.0001% chance that it's like, oh, wow, I found a perfect home. It's inside your brain. And that turns out bad. So you got to be really careful when you're doing that kind of thing because it's it's uncharted waters. We've never studied a microorganism from another planet before, but boy, do I want to. Or more correctly, I want someone, some human to. (laughs) Right. This is somebody who knows more of what they're doing.
1: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I This is very exciting to me, and I have to remind myself that sometimes the things that I want to be true appear to be true mm-hmm. because I want them to be true. Absolutely. And something I really admire about the scientific community is that when they want something to be true, they almost require more evidence because they're aware of how that bias works. Mm-hmm. But the reason, Hank, I want there to be life on Venus so, so badly is that it might orient human interest away from Mars just until 2028, which is when this podcast will be renamed Dear John and Hank in the event that no (laughs) humans have made it to Mars. (laughs) So I don't want to make life on Venus about me, but I think that this is a positive development for me.
0: Yeah, I mean, it certainly does uh, It does broaden our our planetary interest. Yeah, it's so cool. Well, Hank, thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me, John. If you want to send us your questions, you can do that at hankandjohn at gmail.com. We're off to record our Patreon patron-only podcast, This Week in Stuff, where we talk about something that tried to make us happy this week. This podcast is edited by Joseph Tuna Medish. It's produced by Rosiana Hals-Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. Our editorial assistant is Deboki Chakravarti. Our communications coordinator Coordinator is Julia Bloom. The music you're hearing now at the beginning of the podcast is by the great Gunarola, and as they say in our hometown,
1: don't forget, forget to be awesome. awesome.